I remember when I was, when I was young, uh, the day after New Year's Eve was always a hard day. You're always really, really tired. Now that I'm older and I've got young kids, boy, the day after Christmas is tough. I'm worn out. New Year's is a lot easier. Netflix did this really cool thing where they give you these, these midnight countdowns. Midnight happens whenever you want it to now. It's the greatest. Yeah. Uh, my kids are like, I don't think it's midnight. And it's always midnight somewhere. Cue it up. Let's go. We're ready to go. But, but Christmas, boy, it's, there's a to-do list to be done and food to be eaten and people to see and games to play. And I am worn out. I know a lot of others are too. But it was good this morning. It was good to be together and eat together this morning. Uh, it's, it's one of the biggest things that I think we as a church have missed over the last two years is getting to be together and, and break bread is, you know, the Bible way of saying it, right? Eat a lot of food is the way most of us say it. Uh, casserole City. Uh, and I don't know if we've done a breakfast uh, potluck before, so you kind of don't know what's going to show up when you get here. But the casseroles, egg casseroles were out in force today. Uh, way to represent. So that was exciting. Um, I hope that you're there. I got to meet a few people. It's always good meeting new faces when we're here. But we've also got people that are online, whether they're traveling or with family or not feeling well this morning. Uh, so those of you that are online, it's nice meeting you. Uh, if you could just introduce yourself real quick. Uh, what's your name? Okay, and all of us will say, it's nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks. We're glad you're here. Um, you know, it's, it's over the last year, we kind of keep saying it's such a blessing to be able to worship with those who are here, and yet those who are not here but are with us in spirit. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to bring us together in moments like these in all kinds of different ways and times and places, and we're blessed for that. Uh, you know, the last week, I saw an article uh, that said that, that TikTok overcame Google as the most kind of visited and used website in all of the world last week. Uh, which I think, uh, I don't always understand Revelation, but when I do understand it, I'm pretty sure that TikTok being the most important website on planet Earth is one of the signs of the apocalypse. So bad news. Uh, you thought COVID was bad. TikTok is coming for you. Um, so that's kind of wild. But it overtook Google. Uh, so Google has now moved to number two, and yet it remains uh, a very important way for us to kind of see what's going on in the world is to see what everyone is searching for on Google. Uh, it's one of the interesting things Google does is it'll say top 10 searches today. And sometimes you look at that list and you go, why in the world was that all of a sudden on all of the world's question list today? Uh, and so you go check it out and you go, oh, someone did something crazy and they want to know what they've been up to. And so they ask Google. Uh, but Google gives us insight. And so there's a website called Theolocast, uh, kind of like theology and, I don't know, webcast. They slam the words together, came up with Theolocast. Theolocast, uh, at the end of every year, goes through all of Google's search history uh, and sees what planet Earth was searching for over the last year that had to do with year. And obviously this year isn't done yet, so I haven't checked this year's data. Uh, but here's some of the searches from 2019 is on the left and 2020 is on the right. Uh, the number one question that has to do with religion or theology is what is love? Uh, which is a really interesting question, but I feel like it probably gets a little who are just curious, what is love? Is this love or indigestion? I don't um, And so junior high kids are trying to figure out if they have a crush or if they're in love. Um, some of these other questions are, are extremely interesting to me. And, and look at how they change from 2019 to 2020. So here's 2019, uh, and these are in order, by the way. What is the Bible? 
Who is Jesus? What is the church? What is the Salvation Army? Which went up one when I read that because I was like, I don't, what is the Salvation Army? Uh, I know. If you want to know, you can join the search. Uh, what is heaven or hell? Uh, it was pretty high on the list. Who is God? What is meditation? What is evolution? And what is the Big Bang? And so those were the top 10 questions of 2019. Now, something happens at the beginning of 2020 that kind of changes a lot of things in the world, right? Uh, between February and March of 2020, uh, questions on Google about prayer jumped 50%. The world wanted to know how to pray and who to pray to uh, when all of a sudden there's a global pandemic and we're not sure what it's like to live in that space. And so the world asked Google, what is prayer? 50% jump from March over February. But some of the other things that start to change in 2020 in a different world, here's what people are asking Google about religion and faith uh, last year. What is love? What is the Big Bang? Got a huge boost. Uh, don't know why. Who is Jesus? Uh, now, the thing that's interesting to me about the who is Jesus question is it was asked 30% more times in 2020 than it was in 2019. It stayed number three on the list, but 300,000 people a month more were asking about who Jesus was in 2020 than they were in 2019. What is heaven and hell? Jumped huge, jumping 40% more people were asking what happens after death in 2020 than they were in 2019. What is the church? What is the Salvation Army? Who is God? What are the seven deadly sins? What is life? And what is the Bible? I don't know why some of these things change. Uh, I don't know why one million people a month less asked what the Bible was last year, but they did. What is the Bible dropped uh, like from 1.4 million hits a month to, to 400,000? People were less interested in the Bible, but what did they stay interested in, in the midst of a global pandemic? What happens after death? What happens uh, a judgment? What are the seven deadly sins? Am I okay or am I in trouble? What is heaven or hell? Shoots up the list, jumping almost 40%. 500,000 more people a month wanted to know what would happen in case they died than they did in 2019. We had to look into the mirror and realize I may not live as long as I thought I would a year ago. And we wrestled with that. And when we wrestle with questions about what is life and what happens after death and who is God and who is Jesus, we go to the source that we know the most, which is unfortunately not the Bible. It's Google. Google gives us the top answer according to some algorithm, right? Wouldn't it be something if 300,000 people a month started asking the church who Jesus was instead of Google? Wouldn't you love to be able to give the world that answer or live for the world that answer? Who is Jesus? You know, one of the first people to ask that question about Jesus was, in fact, Jesus himself. Jesus is talking to the apostles, and he says to them on, on one occasion in Matthew chapter 16, he says, uh, Jesus is in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Definitely not going to get into the messianic secret today and why it is that Jesus wanted to stay so focused on his vision that he often didn't want the crowds and the chaos that comes from saying, I'm the Messiah over here, follow me. Um, But what is interesting is that when Jesus goes to the apostles and he says, listen, who do people say that I am? What what do people think? I said, well, some people think you're uh, John the Baptist or Elijah uh, back from the dead. And some people think that you're Jeremiah come back and, and, you know, reincarnated and that you're giving us the prophecies that we need to hear. They think that you're these prophets who are dead, but maybe one of them's come back to life and is now Jesus traveling around the countryside. That's a pretty wild answer. It's a pretty wild answer. We don't have a lot of teaching in Judaism about uh, resurrection or reincarnation. And so the fact that they're expecting in some way for these prophets to show up and start preaching and doing incredible acts of power through God's uh, giving them power, is a pretty crazy thing. And we usually skim over that part to get to the part where, uh, where, Peter, uh, where Jesus asked him again, but what, who do you say I am? But I think it's important that for a minute we recognize that this is a really unusual answer, that, that there is this expectation in Jesus' time that as he's doing things, the rumors that are going around, some of them are, could this be the guy that we've been waiting for? And some of those people might have said, do you think he's the son of David we've been waiting for? But more often than not, it appears that the people are coming together and saying, do you think this is the prophet we've been waiting for? Do you think that this is John the Baptist come back, or Elijah come back, or Jeremiah come back, or maybe one of the other prophets? Who's your favorite prophet? Do you think it's him? And this is what's going on in the crowds as Jesus is doing his ministry and teaching his teachings and performing his acts of incredible power. Simon, in the midst of all of that confusion about who Jesus was, speaks with incredible clarity in this moment. Who do you say I am? And Simon, who is Peter, Simon and Peter's two names, same guy. Simon says, uh, you are the Son of God and the Messiah. And that's two things in his mind. Because you could be the anointed one. Messiah is the old Hebrew word for anointed one. It means king or chosen one. And and still not be the son of God. David was an anointed one. Saul was an anointed one. They're made king. And and so on the one hand, what's happening in this moment is that, that Peter says, I believe that you are king. You're the king we've been waiting for. And you're the son of God. He's saying something about Jesus, that that, that you have this royal power and you have this royal, uh, something about you makes me think that you're king and we've been waiting for you to be the king of kings that that comes into this world and makes a difference in our lives. But we also believe that you're in some way the son of God. 
And we figure out as we go through the story that Peter doesn't have it all figured out. He's still struggling to figure out what all of this means. But, but it's an incredible statement in this moment to say, we believe that you are royal, and we believe that you have authority, and we believe that you are of God in some special divine kind of way. Peter says, that's who I think, we think you are. But Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. You see what others don't. Others think that I'm a prophet, but you understand this authority that I have, and you understand that I am from God, and you realize that that makes an incredible difference in who I am and what I'm going to do and who it's going to matter to after I've done it. Uh, later, King Herod is even going to say the same thing as the crowds, that, uh, that Jesus might be John or Elijah resurrected, which would be an unusually frightening thing since Herod was involved in the death of John the Baptist. And yet he says, this guy seems like the other guy. Maybe there's some connection. And yet in the midst of all of that confusion, even from the, the lowest of those who are listening to Jesus to the highest halls of power, they're, they're having all of this confusion about who Jesus is, and Peter seems to understand it. And when we get these glimpses of how other people see Jesus in the text, it gives us pieces about what Jesus was doing. So often we get a story and we get a few hundred words about how Jesus fed thousands, and it's easy for us to go, I know what Jesus did, and I can tell you what he said. But it gives us a totally different insight into those moments when you see it through the eyes of those who are watching Jesus. How did they respond to what they saw? What conclusions did they come to? When I think about this, I'm often reminded, uh, some of you that, that went to Oklahoma Christian may have known Dr. Bailey McBride, who was there for just decades and decades, uh, has some connection to, to my family. His daughter married my uncle, and so uh, I claim all of his intelligence I basically inherited. Uh, Bailey is one of the most brilliant men I've ever met, and that's how brains work, so that, you're welcome. Um, but Bailey one time was giving a speech at OC, and they asked him to reflect on things that he had learned and things that had blessed him and things he regretted uh, when he reflected on his years of teaching and leading at OC and in the church. And I'll never forget that one of the things he said is, is he reads through the Gospels regularly. He reads through the Gospels regularly and, and always every year, often, more often, several times a year. And he says, every time I read the Gospels, I try and look for something I've never seen before. And he says, one of the most recent times I've read through the Gospels, what I did is I didn't, I tried to not look at Jesus the whole time I was reading the Gospels. I look at Jesus all the time when I'm reading. He says, when, I, when I'm reading through this last time, he said, I tried to look at everyone else in the story and see how they responded and reacted to who Jesus was and what he was doing. He says, it's incredible to see how people are reacting to what Jesus does. He says, I'm seeing things about what Jesus is doing kind of just off the margins of the text or just in between the lines that I've never seen before, but I see it in the reactions of the people that are watching him. And I want to spend a little bit of time today going through a few of these stories and not looking at who Jesus was or what he did, but seeing what the people see and how they react and go, oh man, if they reacted that way, how should we react as a result of this story as well? So let me show you what I mean. The first text I want to look at is John chapter 6. John chapter 6. In this story, uh, Jesus is feeding the 5,000. It's the one I mentioned a moment ago. 
It's a little bit of a long text, but I want you to, as we're reading through it, imagine what it would have been like to be watching all of this happen or listening for the clues about what it was like for the people who were there talking to Jesus and watching him throughout this incident. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went to other of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they all, had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus sees this crowd coming, and he tells his, his disciples, he says, listen, I would like for you to feed this crowd. And it says that he's only doing this to test them. He already knows what he's going to do. He's going to feed this crowd. He knows that there's a little bit of food and that with the power of God that he is going to feed the masses with this small amount so that they will see the sign that he is who they hope he is. You know, when it gets to the part of the story where he's fed the crowds and, and the apostles have this moment where when Jesus is challenging them, you guys feed them. They respond with logistics and not faith. They see the challenges and the barriers and the obstacles, which is, by the way, my default setting. Um, I was telling someone the other day, one of the spiritual challenges I give myself as a minister, uh, as, a, as a person, my default setting is I've got an idea, and I want to tell you why that idea is bad, and if you can overcome all my objections, your idea might have a chance, and, and then we'll give it a go. As a minister, one of the things I try and do, and, and as a man as well, uh, I try to more and more start with yes and see if there's actually a reason not to. Because logistics gets in the way of faith. And the disciples and the apostles are counting heads and they're counting fish, and it doesn't take much math to go, Jesus, we've got a problem. And Jesus says, no, we don't. Look with faith, not math. And then he takes the, the food and he offers the blessing. And as they gather all of the abundance left over, what they're seeing is they have more left over than they began with. Because that's what happens when you see with faith and not math. So they come together and the crowd sees this and they say, this is the prophet we've been waiting for. And again, they're waiting for a prophet, not waiting for a king, not waiting for a deliverer, not waiting for a messiah. They're waiting for a prophet. Which is interesting. They say, surely this is the prophet we've been waiting for. And he realizes, it says in the text, Jesus realizes that they're going to try to make him king by force, which is not something I've ever experienced. And I don't know if you have. You ever been in a crowd and, and looked around and thought, they're about to make me their ruler against my will. That's Jesus's reality on this day. 
And he doesn't want that. Because Jesus, over and over again, is rejecting worldly, earthly power and authority and choosing instead, instead to have a heavenly focus and, and bring about a heavenly kingdom into this world that will begin to transform it and shape it with upside-down values about who matters the most. And so Jesus can't be at the top of the ladder while telling people that the servant is going to be the greatest of all. So he continues to choose the way of the servant. But what's incredible to me is just off the page here is that this is a 5,000-man army that has shown up to force Jesus to be king. And Jesus feeds them, and they start thinking something like, Think about how, how wonderful it would be if we had a king and a ruler who could just give us all the food we wanted. We wouldn't have to work anymore. What abundance we would have. And, and imagine what it would be like if he has power over food this way. Don't you think that he'll have the power that Moses had over Pharaoh? And if he has Moses' powers over Pharaoh, then he can have Jesus' powers over Rome. And if he has God's power to, to give us this kind of authority over Rome, then we need to make him king because everyone in this crowd knows if you just suddenly declare someone king over Israel, he is the natural enemy of Rome. And, and it's not that hard to figure out. If, if, let's just say Oklahoma and Texas got together uh, in the next couple of weeks and did something crazy, which Oklahoma and Texas would never do, and we said, we're combining to become the great uh, people of Texlahoma, and we have voted for ourselves a new president. Do you think anyone would take notice of that? I mean, we have an incident in our country where half the country said to the other half, uh, hey, you can have your president, we've got our own, don't worry about it, and there's nothing to see down here. And a little bit of a bloody conflict, a civil war, broke out. You can't just go to the people in charge and say, hey, we've talked about it. We reject your ruler and have our own. But that's what's happening after Jesus feeds the 5,000 is that the crowd says, we don't care if this means war with Rome. This man needs to be our king today. What does that tell you about Jesus? What does that tell you about Jesus? That they're willing to take on the strongest and most organized army in the history of the world as long as this guy is in charge. As long as this guy's leading their army, they don't have anything to worry about. As long as this guy is, is talking to God on their behalf, they're confident that they can defeat Rome. Bring it on, Caesar. We've got Jesus. It's quite a statement to make. So all the pictures you've seen of Jesus, where he looks like a scholar and a philosopher and a preacher, and he just looks nerdy. You don't look at the nerd on Rome. You don't. They see something in him. That, they see something in him that is revolt-worthy, and they're willing to go the distance if he's in charge. But I want to look at a couple other stories and get more of a glimpse into Jesus. Turn over, if you've got your Bibles, to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, a different story. Uh, at this time, we're not on the mountainside anymore. We're down on the water, and Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. And that day, when evening came, he says to the disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. 
Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you drown? He got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. And they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so you've got this, this crazy story. They're in these boats, and it's a group of boats, and it's traveling, and a huge storm comes up, and the waves are all around them, and they're breaking over the, the sides, and Jesus is asleep on a cushion, which I don't know how you sleep in a storm like this, but that's what Jesus is doing. And, and the disciples go, and they wake him up. And they wake him up and they say, don't you even care? Wake up. Wake up. And, and we have to ask, why did they think that waking Jesus up would change the chances of their survival? And, and, and until recently, I'd never even thought about this in this way. They wake Jesus up and say, don't you care? If you were just awake, you could. But we don't know how they finished the sentence. Jesus could what? Jesus could, they, they're clearly about to be shocked that he calms the storm. That's not their expectation. That, uh, he could save them? How? Jesus, wake up. We need you as a good leader to feel empathy for us so that we can know that we're felt and understood in this tragic moment. I don't think so. Jesus, wake up. We know that you're the best rower among us. Come on, just get up here and row. If you row, then we'll probably make it. Jesus, wake up. If you can provide calm and leadership for our minds, we can all pull together and, and get through it. I, I don't know what they're expecting. They don't have enough faith, you know from the end of the story, they don't have enough faith to expect that he's going to wake up and say, calm down, storm, chill out, I'm not in the mood for this. They don't expect that. But they do have enough faith to know that if this man Jesus wakes up, we're going to be okay. I don't know how. I don't know why. If he's asleep, we're in trouble. And if he's awake, we've got a chance. Somebody wake him up. Don't you care about us? Just wake up and make this better. Which is so often about as much faith as we have, isn't it? I, I, Jesus, if you're here and you show up, I know it'll be better. I don't know how. I don't know why. I certainly don't expect extreme stuff, but a little bit of something can get me through this. And Jesus wakes up. And he calms the storm. And he says, why do you still have so little faith? And I don't know what Jesus expected. I don't know if Jesus expected them to just say, hey, this is the Son of God. If he's on our boat, we're safe. I don't know if they expected uh, if Jesus, uh, if he just wakes up, he can say, I, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus wanted them to believe, uh, hey, if, if we are his apostles and his disciples and he's given us power, we can calm the storm. I don't know. But Jesus knows that they've got enough faith to know that he matters, and he wishes they had enough faith to trust that God's just going to take care of it because of who Jesus is and who these people are in relation to him. They need the rest of the faith. They know that he's got enough. And after this moment, they're terrified. 
Because when you're hanging out with someone that can control the weather, the appropriate response is to be terrified. He has unbelievable power. The crowds wanted to take him and make him ruler over earthly authorities, and yet the apostles begin to realize that he also has power and authority over nature itself. And with all of this power and with all of this authority, on another occasion, Jesus is walking through a city and he's, and, and he's doing his ministry and he's, he's, he's teaching and he's preaching. And here in Matthew chapter 19, what happens with this, this is the same guy that they tried to make king by force so that he could take on Rome, the same guy that has power over the wind and the rain and the, the waves. And people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. So again, let's go into the eyes of the people that are watching this scene. I've never been at a parade when Caesar's marching back into Rome, but I bet you that most parents weren't getting their kids to the front and saying, kids, come on up, come see Caesar. Come touch his hand, come kiss his ring. Caesar loves kids. I, I just don't imagine that. I don't imagine that Herod on occasion would, would be out holding court uh, in Jerusalem and have the people telling their children, just go say hi to Herod. He's great. He helped build this building. Go, go say hi to Herod. He's a madman. He is a madman. The kids are like, no, he killed the babies before. I'm not going over there. Pharaoh, in all of his might and all of his wealth, I, I just don't picture Pharaoh having little children coming up to him, but there's something about Jesus as he's walking down the street that the parents looked at him and said, I think if I tell my kids to go over there, he'll be okay with it. Strong enough to have a revolt against Caesar, control over the wind and the waves, and when parents see him, they think, I don't think he's unapproachable to my young children. And they, they test that theory out, and they say, kids, just go on up and just let him pray for you. And the apostles, who have seen Rome, and who have seen Herod, and have seen Pilate and other rulers, start saying, serious men don't hang out with children. And they shoo the children away, and Jesus says, no, 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 the parents saw me right. The parents perceived me correctly. The children can come too. And the children go up to Jesus, and he lays his hands on them, and he prays blessings over children. The crowds still think he can lead a revolt over Rome. And he still has power over nature and food and everything else. He's still healing the sick. And yet the parents say, we don't think this guy's unapproachable for children. And they were right. This is who Jesus is. This is how Jesus interacts with people in, in the world. And so does Jesus have the power to feed thousands? Yes. Rule a nation? Yes. Oversee a revolt? Certainly. Does Jesus have the ability to calm the storm? And yet, does he still take the time and take the effort to lay his hands on children whose parents thought he was gentle enough and approachable enough to be trusted with his, their kids? Yeah. Jesus does all of these things. And if you only see Jesus with one dimension, if you see him as the nerdy scholar guy walking around telling parables all the time, you're missing the fact that they thought he could defeat Caesar. 
And if you've got this image of Jesus, that he's, he's got all this power and authority and that, that he's too much, that he's not approachable to you, then you forgot the parents who sent their little children. And if you've got just enough faith to wake Jesus up, but not enough faith to expect anything to come out of it, then Jesus wants to know why you're still not willing to believe that he is who he has proven himself to be. When we look through the eyes of the people who are watching Jesus, we see so much about who He is. We see so much about how we can relate to Him. When we read these stories, we can ask ourselves, what did these people see? How did they respond? What conclusions did they draw? And then the question then for us is, how then, as a result of reading about their witness, their response, their conclusions, what response do I make? What conclusions do I draw? What does this matter to me? Will Jesus be your Savior? Will Jesus be your King? Or are you still clinging to the empires and kingdoms of this world? Are you still hoping that you can save yourself? Are you still asking Google who Jesus is? Or are you ready to say, I know who Jesus is. He is the King and He is the Son of God, and I'm just going to sort everything else out around those two things. If you've made that decision, then i got to challenge you as you go into this next year, are you actually living as if that were true? And if you haven't made that decision and reached those conclusions, then I've got to ask you today, if you can't see Jesus, you can see Him through the eyes of the people who did. Their conclusion was that He was worthy of giving their lives for. Is it going to be your conclusion too? Who do you say Jesus is? If you need to come forward, do so this morning. Let me stand and sit.